You're listening to The Book End, a podcast for the emerging authors to read an excerpt from their own book and give us a lowdown on their writing process. They are also invited to share a poem or a prose piece by an author of their own choice. I'm your host Sahar Hashmi. You are tuned in to The Book End. You tuned in to the bookend. Listeners, I'm so thrilled and honored to welcome Carol Ann Davids to the show today. Carol Ann Davids is a novelist, essayist, editor, publisher, an artist, cultural activist, and out and out woman of letters from Cape Town, South Africa. There are two critically acclaimed novels to her credit. The Blacks of Cape Town, her debut was shortlisted for Edinburgh Book Fest's first book award, and her recent release, How to be a revolutionary which has been the talk of the town even before it was published and won her the prestigious Sunday Times literary award for best fiction in 2022 very warm and energetic welcome to the show carol how Thank are you, you so much Lovely how's everything um very good it's um quite a hot windy day in cape town but otherwise all good thinking so tell us something about your novel that i'm really really excited about how to be a revolutionary when i read the title it, I wanted to know more about the book and it, there isn't any exclamation mark there isn't any question mark so I couldn't help you know appreciating the poetic quality it has that you know it sounds like a pithy compact kind of you know comment what you were going to say in 200 plus pages so what what I picked was a little bit of caustic irony and you know its satirical implications but I would still like to know what is it that you intended the title to stand for I'd say that's a, a lovely reading um it, it's definitely ironic because you know how to be a revolutionary who, who really knows how to be a revolutionary <laughs> so it was intended to kind of be open ended um you know and hopefully as one read through the book you would see the contradictions with you know that kind of labeling you know people might adopt this idea of themselves as a revolutionary but then do they act really you know justify that they call themselves such and, and then also you know people just the human spirit when you know when we open ourselves to who we really are i think we 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 find things that we at the start of our journey that will surprise us so you know there is no dogma to be fair in in how one can be a revolutionary or at least how the characters in this book um in, in this book how they approach their lives because though they do think that they are revolutionaries life does various things at them and they respond as human beings and sometimes you know it's very contradictory it's very hypocritical um but i think at the end of the book all the characters they do really live their life passion and um you know with conviction uh, and so yeah it's an ironic title um yeah and tell us something about when did you conceive the you know can you recall the first inkling the first seed that later sprouted into how to be a revolutionary um you know there were i never really can answer this question because i, I guess i'm always writing books you know in the in the corridors of my mind but probably if i had to narrow down to a few occasions where i thought okay this is the novel that i'm going to write next it was when i was actually in shanghai and uh, we took a weekend trip to hong kong um and there was um this 
I think it's called, there was a newspaper that I read while I was, you know, having breakfast in, in Hong Kong. And I think it was called the South China, South East China Post, something like that. I can't remember now. And it was the story about this, um, Chinese actor, uh, sorry, Chinese journalist who had spent decades collecting information from the archives, you know, secretly collected from the archives and who wrote this very poignant story about what had actually happened, uh, to his family, but also to China during the Great Leap Forward. Um, so that kind of became a seed. And then, of course, I was living in Shanghai at some point, um, which was just fascinating because it's a beautiful city with incredibly warm and wonderful people. And I wanted to reflect on that time. And um, yeah, I, I guess I'm always also looking back at South Africa, looking at what has transpired here over the last few decades. Um, and I guess I'm always trying to reflect on the process that we've come to as a country, uh, because, you know, at this point in my life, I've lived half of my life under apartheid and half of my life outside of apartheid. And mm-hmm. so this is, you know, this gives me kind of the vantage to, you know, look forward and backward and, and to kind of understand the inferences that the past has had on you know, my own life and, and the, the current place we are at in Kabat. Yeah. And the scope of your novel is immensely vast, both in terms of time lapse and a geographical setting. It's across continental stories spanning over 20th and 21st century. So how do you, like, when you are connecting the dots between Bat's struggle in apartheid era and then to Zong's struggles and his um, experiences with Tiananmen Square uprising, and then how it is connected to the civil rights movement that, that took place in Harlem all the way in America. How did you manage all this and where and how do you think that they are all connected at heart? Well, I, I, I really, um, I guess it, it, it's my, um, I don't know if it's my ideology or just my advantage of the world, but I really believe that everything is connected. I don't think that, you know, the borders, the countries that we are in um, are actually isolated from, from our neighbors or from what's happening in the broader world. Um, and, you know, this is this is true for global history. I, I keep thinking, you know, 1948 was such a, a pivotal year in the history of the world. And you can go to almost any country in 1948 and you can draw a line to another country because of course 1948 was just after the Second World War. Um, there was the India-Pakistan division. South Africa introduced apartheid, well the, the previous government of course introduced apartheid in 1948. The Communist Party uh, was coming into power properly in 1948 in China. Mm-hmm. You know, there were just massive <laughs> geopolitical repercussions across the world there was a lot going on so to my mind these we are all interconnected in we, we are all interconnected and and there are always repercussions um you know and we see this now even with we see this with the planet you know we understand how much we are actually a whole how much we are part of the system because we see you know climate change we, we see how these things are stacked up and we know that what happens in one country is not isolated
itself. For me, it's similar. It, it's the same to say that about politics. Not, nothing happens in a vacuum. We are simply all interrelated. So I guess that was that was how I started out the novel, thinking this. Um, and then it was, you know, telling these stories, but kind of identifying the thread which made these stories, you know, not not necessarily into interact with each other, but they are interwoven, mm-hmm. if that makes sense. And this is what the novel unfolds. Yes. How to be and a... that's kind of you know it sh- it shows you how these people they, they they have more in common than they understand it. You are absolutely right. The shock waves were felt everywhere, all across the globe. Would you like to yes, read an excerpt from? Read. I'll read from the first chapter. Uh, let's see how far we go, but um, let me start and then yeah, let's see. Okay, how to be a revolutionary, chapter one, Shanghai. The repetitive beat of typewriter keys always amplified at around one a.m. because this was the time when life on the street below stopped. Shanghai never became truly quiet. Only in the slip of time between midnight and 4 a.m. did the traffic recede and the noise temporarily wane. All day long, the din of construction filled the air as cranes and gantries, as common to the skies, birds and flames, other cities crisscrossed the bread. Bamboo scaffolding woven intricately as fine cotton gave shape to the vertical city. While beneath, ship workers arrived all day long, their hum and thrust of metal always in the distance. In those months, when I was new to the city and its unfathomable sounds, I knew this was the time, if any, that I would yearn fighting. The procession of taps and clicks was followed by a quick ring, a slow zip, familiar sounds that had echoed throughout my childhood when my mother brought an egg to work. It kept time to my weakening eyelids until, as always, I lost the battle. There was no music now in the beat that seeped through the skin of cement, and I knew my neighbor from above was only one finger. I said he was a man. She'd seen him smoking on the balcony one morning. At least I think she said that. She didn't speak a word of English, and I'd learned only the most of fun. Hello, goodbye, thank you, excuse me, how much for that? No, that, and so on. A combination of signs, gestures, and incomprehensible words stitched together mine eyes communication about the work she had to do when she came to be. We never said much more, and I only gleaned a bit of information about my neighbor when something crashed one morning in the apartment above, rising above. I responded in a stream of furious indignation, gesturing my neighbor's chain smoking, and I guess he's goatee. Anyway, I was certain he was a man from the way he seized the bowl in a steady hard stream at 4 a.m. The typing kept me awake, but also strangely comforted. It made up in some small way for the empty space beside me. I had just unpacked a few groceries that I'd bought at the international store, bread, coffee, a bottle of South African wine that I'd already opened, and imported more. The scandal where melamine had been added to dairy products to increase their weight had only just passed. People had died, and everyone was still on edge, but nothing startled me. No one besides I came to my door, and the roaring bronze line above the polished knocker was unused. Good evening. Words emerged from the drafted passageway that sounded steady, wooden. I would appreciate your assistance. I didn't open the door fully, even though I felt safe in the apartment in the city. You speak English? I'm looking for a word, please. I opened the door a fraction more so I could see him properly. He must have been in his early 60s, I decided from the stain of silver hair that hung around his ears, while his hands, delicate and careful, were cupped before him in a question. I'm not sure I understand. I'm looking for a word. Something like sad, but not sad, he said, shaking this idea from his head. Something more rich. You're writing something in English ask? He nodded. Then it depends how you will use the word. What's the context? I said, smiling, but maintaining the door at 45 degrees. I was equally perplexed and intrigued by the stranger, and wondered why of all the doors he might have approached, he'd come to mind. No, his face broke into a 
being useful. I'm sorry, cannot give. Sometimes it's, it felt as if I was speaking into a body of water yet. Words spoken but the meaning distorted, walked in translation, even with people who had a strong command of English. So I was learning to adapt. I mean to say I need to understand how you will use the words. I can give you the best one. I talked in my head. He followed suit. I understand, he said, but cannot give. Well, maybe you should come inside. I swung the door fully open and for months after couldn't say why I'd invited the stranger into my home. I'd made no friends in the city, hadn't even gone to the welcome for new consular staff a few weeks earlier, and I was coming to think of my solitariness as a choice, as a decision. He made his way into the living room and towards the window that held the Huangfu River and its smoky vista of filament of pink dragged right across that. It's a good view, I said. Mind the same, he replied. Oh, really? You're in the same block house? At which he pointed up. On a higher floor? One up. Mind you, same, but better. He smiled again. Maybe I'd misunderstood. You look above me? Yes, right above. One up, he said, pointing his pointer nudging the air. My grasp about the man began to solidify. It was him, my inconsiderate neighbor, my pertinacious cypress, coming over to ask for a word. I wasn't angry, perhaps mildly annoyed, but curious. After all, hadn't his life become part of mine, leaping into, sorry, leaping into my sleep, establishing some sense of routine? I said, I hear you sometimes. What? Typing. The typing in the middle of the night. He watched my fingers pounding invisible letters and hitting a non-existent typebox. You can hear? No, you are mistaken, stammered. This is not me. I do not possess. Really? But I was certain the word, the sounds were coming from above, I said. Bewilderment and, I suppose, an involuntary challenge rising in my voice. Really? But I was certain the words were coming from above, I said. Bewilderment and, I suppose, an involuntary challenge rising in my voice. We stared at each other. Of course, I had already been schooled, warned even, about the intricate set of formalities and courtesies that presided over social interactions in China. The city's non-Chinese spoke about face-saving in weary terms. How well books had been written about it and the dreadful perils that awaited those who didn't pretend an error or fervor mission or far worse hadn't been seen, but it clearly had been. I thought the matter of face-saving exaggerated, dramatized to keep foreigners on their toes, yet now confronted with the understanding that offense was about to be caused already had been. I felt my face beating and backtracking, I said in mitigation. Um, you know, I just opened the bottle of wine when you knocked at the door. Darth, you glass? We should sit down. I can't finish the bottle all by myself. I walked to the kitchen without waiting for his answer. When I returned to the living room, he was holding the book in his hand. One eye was screwed tight, the other standing it back as his fingers turned up the spine. Oh, that's a book of letters that Langston used, but actually to someone from my country, I said, checking the cover. You know Langston used? Of course, I've read. Oh, I tried not to show how pleased I was, almost irrationally so. You're from where? South Africa, I said. He drank the wine quickly, without stopping, and when he was done, said in the practiced tone that I first heard at the door, thank you for your kindness. He gave a deep nod, almost a bow, and left without waiting for my reply or the word for which he had first. I really felt that he, you know, Zong takes a little bit of a hint of offenses there when he's been asked that, have you read that? I think that this, even the mention of Langston Hughes letters is a big, huge symbol and the way both of them have read it and then they connect. This is where that's the connecting point and it kind of further emphasizes this idea that different movements for freedom, for liberty, for struggle and for to claim your basic human rights are in fact connected to each other even if they take place in a different time era and in a totally different geographical location so and at the same time i just feel that um, this also implies that how uh, how powerful the you know words are and uh, the power of literature as well the the power that it has to connect and to bring people together yeah absolutely i mean you know it, it it's a serendipitous moment for the two of them you know it's when you meet someone who has loved a book that you've loved there's a spark there and immediately you feel a connection to that person 
lesson, you know. I mean, many of my friendships are actually formed over things like this, you know. We've read something that we both just, you know, were drawn to. And so suddenly there's this human connection that you've just solved with someone who was a stranger just five minutes ago. So I thought that was a really good way to introduce them to each other. And then, of course, later in the book, when this main character, Beth, uh, when she meets her best friend, I mean, it, it, it kind of is a backstory. It goes back to her childhood. It's also the bonding over a book and a different African-American writer this time. So this was Langston Hughes, which who actually does have um, quite a lot of presence in even in contemporary China. Um, and he, in fact, had spent time in China in the 1930s. So, um, you know, he, there is a reputation in China about Langston Hughes. He, he traveled in um, not only in China, but also in Japan decades ago when traveling, you know, was not very easy to do. So he left the mark there. He, he, he met the um, really someone, a very big, he, he met very many beloved Chinese figures when he was in China. And so there is this love for him. And, you know, similarly, uh, Langston Hughes, uh, and now this is me as the writer speaking, Langston Hughes had written letters to many writers inside of my country um, and other parts of South Africa, other parts of the African continent, and also to writers in the city in which I live. So, you know, that was this lovely little one, two, three kind of set connections between uh, Zhang, um, um, our main character Zhang, um, and Tibet. And so that kind of just, you know, it, it immediately means you and I are connected when you have this sort of connection. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And it also is a good way, um, and again, just speaking as a writer, it's a good way to kind of introduce the topic of Langston Hughes, who does, who is in fact a character in the novel as well at some point. So, um, yeah. And it also, you know, it kind of re-emphasizes the power of literature as well. This is how I felt. Yes, absolutely. Um, you know, we were speaking earlier about um, the fact that things are connected and, and how and why are they connected. One of the ways is culture. You know, the books that we read, the books that we make connections over. And the globe is obviously increasingly smaller when we read the same books, when we watch the same television shows, um, when we listen to the same music. Mm-hmm. So, you know, many of my friendships are also both on music. Um, you know, so some someone who loved the same band that I loved growing up, you immediately have that spark and it, it, it kind of crosses a huge amount of territory with the person without having to explain it, if, if you see what I'm saying. So it is very much about the power of literature, which, you know, as, as an individual has really shaped my life in many ways. And so I did want to kind of communicate back about these two people that, that reading and literature was important to them and that they could bond over it, despite the fact that they're on two different continents. And when they first meet each other, they think they have nothing in common. They have so much in common. And I think that that book is the introduction to what they have in common. Yeah, it reinforces it and also the power of the unifying power that literature has. But yeah. we would like to know a little bit about your writing, your, you know, writing routine. Do you follow a strict structured kind of writing regimen or how do you go about your writing process? Uh, you know, it one thinks it's going to be, you know, 9 for 12 and then you go for a walk and you get back. It, when you're a parent, <laughs> um, it, it's about picking, dropping your kids off at school, picking them up, making sure they've eaten. So I write and, and also I work as an editor. Just this morning I've been finishing off an edit. So I write when I can write. I try to try to give myself each three hours a day working on um, just writing. But it's not always possible um, when one is a parent. So you do what you can as long as you keep getting better than you keep putting words on. That that's kind of basically my that's my approach. <laughs> yeah, I think because you you are a seasoned veteran writer, so you've gone through that stage when you are still struggling. The fledgling writers are still struggling. How to how to you know wondering 
about the writing discipline and how to discipline yourself. Is there any advice that you can leave for those who are still in that stage when they are grappling with this with this uh, discovery that they are writers? Yeah, I mean, yeah, I mean, there are two pieces of information that I would share that I have learned. It is to you have to just sit down and start. You have to just put the words down. That is the first thing, and the second thing is that um, you have to read all the time because the reading is the education. Uh, the reading is what makes a writer because even though you you're, you're reading and you might be reading for entertainment, you might be just like completely immersed in the story, but you are learning sentence structure, you're learning rhythm, you're learning how to tell a story, you know, you're learning how to structure a story, you're learning all the important information while you're reading. I mean, of course, you can go to university and you can learn it there, but you can also do it through reading and, you know, you're also just getting the benefit of, of reading it, but you're also learning. So those are the two things I would say. Would you like to read uh, from the next chapter? Can we have another example? I can read. Um, I don't think I'll read the entire next chapter, but I'll just give you a little bit of background to it. Um, so the second chapter is the backstory for the character that we've just met there and it's how she meets her best friend, but I'm just going to read from the end of it. Her best friend's name is Kay. Um, and so uh, I'm going to read from the uh, where we uh, learn a little bit more about Kay. Kay lived with her grandmother five minutes away from there in a part of waterfalls and no one walked her unless they were unlucky enough to live there. Or they had a death wish. Why else would anyone be caught in the silver flat? The gangs gathered right there on the path and battled night to axe the panga to Makaroka store with Ereta because of some territorial discrepancy or because one of theirs had been arrested on a temple. It was or because the sun had shone too brightly that day, waking them up in mantra fueled rage. A six-year-old boy had been shot while playing cards in the family's living room. The bullet exploding from the gun's mouth, bypassing 10 to 15 men, all of them packing multifarious hands of contraband. Except a tin roof, took a left and went through the window of the line, finding the boy's cell. Truck like that always happens, Hay said as the door pretended to do their homework. That's why we have to fight the system. We have to change it. And it's not just apartheid, but capitalism that's at the root of the evil. When liberation comes, we'll give everyone housing, proper housing, and work. Even the sollies. Clean up the silver flat, paint it, make after the children. Make sure everyone can go to school and have free education, especially girls and women. They started to see each other every day, even though Kay was a year ahead. Kay's abrupt ways and quickness of confront usually meant other girls avoided her entirely. They brought books and small talk about what was happening in the rest of the world, while Kay took care of political education and carried the world on her shoulders. It was an unequal union, to be sure, but Beth didn't mind. Not yet, anyway. No, they hadn't known until after they'd met how much each needed the other to stand straight, finding strength in the number two. In their world, when they decided which they decided was theirs to shape, no matter what principle Sally and the government said, there were no stories, no worries over getting knocked up, or for that matter beat up at 19, or finding jobs as semi-permanent cashiers or brains of white living. No. Their conversations soft current that ran from here now and lit the future all the way. They quickly realized that only Kay knew the things she wanted to know, like how to get more than three books out of the library, right under Mrs. Adams' awkward day, or how to light a new cigarette from a zombie, how to argue dialectical materialism, how to kiss a boy, how to apply lessons learned from communist China from Africa, how to play, how to flick a zipper lighter with one hand, how to lead a toy toy so it actually sounded and looked like a battleground, how to do a fish like, how to erect a barrier burning pads across the main road, how to get the stupid little boys listen to you without them looking down the path, how to write a rhyming couplet, how to apply lessons from communist Russia to South Africa, how to get the nerds to care about the struggle as much as about their book, how to make Sally lose his temper so he started swearing like a bear thing, how to lead a group of students to a mass rally, how to say I past midnight, how to get the teachers to leave you alone, how to shout a man's love without sounding serving, how to down a shot, how to be a revolutionary. Amazing. I think we will all slay being a revolutionary after reading this passage this time. <laughs> 
this is exactly what is needed and <laughs> you demystified it and it's so beautiful it's gonna stay with me thank you so much, thank you so much. and i would also like to know something about the stories are uh, your stories a bad story is wired around political and the personal deeply embedded into it do you think that uh, the stories in ex colonies are terribly tangled and it's not possible to separate the personal from political even if you wish to do that you know people will disagree and say well history is history ah uh, that that's not been my experience you know uh, like in south africa we are so and will quite sometimes deal with the legacy of apartheid uh you know by far the people who suffered under apartheid their children and their grandchildren are still the people who suffer in south africa today we still have a wild disparity you know the people whose ancestors were rich they are still rich the people whose ancestors were poor they are still poor so there's a great deal to overcome so um you know we still have to battle with getting everyone educated in, in a significant and, and meaningful way um so one would like to separate it but that simply is not my experience you know um if you're born in a particular place because your parents and your grandparents grew up under apartheid it is going to affect the way you live it's going to affect your future and what you're able to achieve um and if there are only very few people who can defy all the odds you know what i mean there are very few people who can say okay well it doesn't matter how poor i am it doesn't matter that i don't have an education i'm going to make a way in a world there are very few people that can do that so there's still which is to basically me saying there is all structural inequality and poverty in south africa um you know there are so many structural things which we have to battle with um but yeah i mean you know we've ma- we've made a start since 1994 it is inseparable i think it's even if you want you, you know it just it's going to creep out and just pop up its head from somewhere from nowhere yeah yeah, yeah absolutely thanks a lot carol it has been an honor of mine to host you on the show and thanks a lot for making time for the book and out of your extremely terribly hectic schedule thank you so much i'm sorry if it was so hard to connect with each other but i'm very glad you found me uh, thank you for the honor of inviting me mm. um it's lovely to know that you you see you in another country you in the, an, another part of the world and um we made a connection over literature yes we did and it's it's amazing it's wonderful and exactly what you said about south africa i can copy that same as it's, it's just copy paste in on uh, whatever is happening in our society back in pakistan as well so you know there there are there are so so many things that are common because because mm. of this political which is still terribly personal sorry which is still terribly tangled with the political and um, when, when you dig it out why it is to it it all goes back to the colonial past of ours and which is where we connect yeah. with each other <laughs> so. yeah which also and as we said you know 1948 pivotal year around the globe um sure 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 and, and the freedom so that, that would be pakistan yes sir right. so you know that that was also something which was in the back of my mind when i was writing this novel and thinking well you know what happened in 1948 you know such a big year for the world yeah, yeah there was thanks a lot carol it has been an honor thank you very much it was lovely talking to you and i feel so honored and privileged as well to host you on this humble platform of mine thanks a lot thank you wonderful you have a lovely day you too bye 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 you were tuned in to the book and i'm your host sahar hashmi signing off you can listen to the book and on spotify and apple podcast follow us on insta at the book dot and for requests features and suggestions get reading with the book and